Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the success series, episode number three. I am your host, David Berg, and I am here accompanied by my guest, Josh Sasson. We are here today and we're going to talk about a wide variety of topics. Josh has a really cool story and I'll let him share a bit more of the intricacies in that. But he is an entrepreneur, born and raised in New York City, now lives in Miami with his wife. Um, they have a baby on the way and he has a very successful empire of real estate and hedge funds, but really just a really good person. And that's why we wanted to have him on here today. The floor is yours, Josh, and we'd love to, uh, to hear a little bit from you and tell us your story. Thank you, David. Uh, what an honor to be here. I remember we were talking a couple months ago about the idea of putting a podcast together like this, and here we are. Pretty good for a couple months' work. Huh? Completely. So that's it's very exciting and, uh, and, and excited to see what comes of it. In terms of my story, in brief, uh, born and raised, as you said, in New York, grew up in Long Island. Uh, to an Israeli father and a mother from uh, Queens, New York. They met in Israel. Uh, my mom, uh, after school, was living on a kibbutz in Israel for about six, seven months, and they, they met. Uh, my father could barely speak English at the time, but I guess there was more going on than just talking. And uh, soon after, uh, he, my mom <clears throat> moved back to New York, and he followed they got together. Uh, I believe they were married in 85. My dad came to the States in 83, married in 85, and I was born in 87. So uh, I have a younger brother. We both grew up in Long Island, New York, in a town called Plainview and had a nice uh, middle-class upbringing uh, and had a really good childhood. I have really good memories overall from my childhood. Um, and I think I was always, you know, as I reflect on it now, growing up, I was always um, sort of proud to be a little bolder, edgier, do things differently than than what the norm was. What was the what was the norm, and what did you break? <laughs> so, so the norm was, at least in my town, most. Um, I guess it was fathers at the time because a lot of the mothers were stay at home or working office jobs. But most fathers in my town were professionals. So lawyers or worked a corporate job or things like that. Very few entrepreneurs. Right. Um, and so that was one of the molds that I ended up breaking. My father actually was an entrepreneur. He was a builder. He was a contractor for himself. And I saw, you know, some some modest highs. I saw a lot of low lows and so grew up with that, which we could talk about further. Yeah, um, but uh, I, I don't know. I was always different. I mean, I have tattoos and I, I was artistic. I played music growing up. What, what did you play? Like piano and drum? I play 12, 13 different instruments. I, yeah, I started a band when I was 12 years old. Uh, were you singing or just everything? Drums at the time, but I wrote all the music. We actually got signed to a record deal when I was uh, 15, okay. and I was doing that from 15 to 20, thought that was going to be my path in life, and so I was the guy going to rock shows and playing in bands in high school and even middle school. It's just different, and I kind of embraced that. I liked that. 
And so I was, I was, you know, at that time when I was growing up, thinking music was going to be, be my path. We were signed to a deal. I was in 10th grade. The label head our, who signed us was an NFL player who played really? for the Denver Broncos. His name What's is name? Trevor Price. Okay. He had a label called Outlook Music, which was a publishing label, meaning the whole structure of the label was to sign bands that he would then upsell to major labels. And once you get signed to a major... That's huge. Yeah. You're in the Grammys. You're, yeah, you're on tour yeah, across yeah, yeah. the world. At least I thought. So I thought. And uh, quickly realized, well, not so quickly, but by the time I was 20 years old, um, and I didn't originally think I was going to go to college, but my mother sort of applied to, I did very well in high school. I had really good grades. I had good SATs, but I didn't want to go to college because I wanted to pursue music. My mom's behind my back applies to uh, uh, Hofstra University for me yeah. um, and, and convinces me that they have a music business program there. And so if the band thing doesn't work out, at least I, get, I have the backup plan. Sure. I ended up getting a full scholarship to Hofstra. Really? So, yeah. Not for the music, for your academics? For the academics. Okay. Solely based on academics. Right. I enlisted in the music business program. Two years in, I was miserable. Really? My band, the music career hadn't really taken off. I did not like the music program at Hofstra. And so I had a moment of reflection. And I said to myself, this is not, this is not it for me. And what I really didn't like at the time was I felt like I was a pawn in a larger game. Mm -hmm. And I felt like everything I was doing was to appease these record label bosses. And they would come and watch us showcase meaning play for them. And sure. they would say, oh, they're a bit green. Have them come back to us again next year or whatever. There was always a reason. And I said, I don't want to be on that side of the tape. Right. You want to be the one pulling the strings and telling people where to move. Right. So I'll make it sound like it was a quick decision, but it was several weeks, months at the time, two years into college, uh, that I decided to completely change course. And I shifted out of the music business school completely over to just the business school okay. and I became an entrepreneurship major because they did have a program yeah, for that. that. It was very new. I think I was the second year that that it was. Really? Yeah, which I, I, I liked aspects about that as well. It was new. It was fresh. There was one professor that taught all of the classes. As an entrepreneurship major, you have to focus on something mm -hmm. within business. That's a, a part of the uh, part of the major. And so my focus was on finance. Because I started to become interested in investing, and I was investing my own account here and there with nothing. I mean, I, how did the, there wasn't Robinhood or TD? How, was there a mobile app at the time, or how did you? No, so I was gifted uh, a few thousand dollars worth of IMAX shares at my bar mitzvah. Really, that's a great present for the bar mitzvah. It was really great. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and so it's funny because I was gifted them by a really wealthy cousin. When I and I never even knew I had it until right. I was 21 years old ish, 20, 21 years old. My I, somehow I find out I have this account. I open up the account, there's a few thousand dollars in yeah. there. This was around 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis. Right. So, and and stocks were in the gutter, and it was a really, in retrospect, a really good time to buy equities. What I did was I liquidated the IMAX position and ended up buying a bunch of equity. Before or after the crash? 
I bought on the low of lows. Wow. It was March 9th, 2009. Divine inspiration. Perhaps. And I started studying everything I could on Graham and the concept of value. And I ended up graduating at the end of 2009. And I was in the honors program there. And as a part of the honors program, you have to write a thesis. Sort of not, not anything close to a doctorate thesis, but it was like a hundred page type of thesis. So I ended up writing mine, being in the entrepreneurship program, on a business plan for a company that I was going to start. Okay. And that company was an investment firm. And I wrote this whole thesis around how I was going to raise $100 million and a 2% management fee would cover the overhead and, and provide enough salary for me to live. And I quickly realized that that was not going to happen, or at least I thought. When did that bubble pop? Oh, very quick. Very, <laughs> very quick. Yeah. Finish writing it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, and so, but that was the the construct where I said, okay, is there a strategy that I can find where I can employ the value concepts that I know and really enjoy that just requires far less money? And that was eventually um, sort of the founding thesis upon which my hedge fund business was was born. Uh, which was called Magna that I founded in 2009. Um, and it started, you know, with me in a bedroom in my parents' house. Okay. The Jeff Bezos story. Not a basement. Not not the basement, not the garage. Not the garage. Some people close. say garage. It was close. Sounds better when you say basement, you know, but yeah. did you guys have a basement? We did. We did, but that was my recording studio was in my oh, basement. Okay. So, hey, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. But it was, no, it was in my bedroom. Um and I turned my bedroom into an office during the day by opening the blinds. That was my thing. When the blinds were, and I put on a suit every day. Really, even though you're working from home. To get my mind in the in the in the mode, and I started. And three years later, um, the initial strategy that we launched with was an international business. Okay. Um, tens of millions of dollars invested. Uh, I I personally, you know, saw a lot of success in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, and ran that business for 10 years. And it eventually became a multi-platform hedge fund with various different credit and special situation strategies, including real estate, which was launched in earnest in 2012 and then formally in 2016. Um, and then as of 2019, 2018, 2019, I spun out of the credit and special situations strategies, um, sold some to partners and, and shut down others. Uh, to focus 100% on real estate. And so the real estate business today is called the Sassone Organization. Mm -hmm. uh, we're headquartered out of Miami with an office in New York. Um, and that is, you know, my primary business focus today. Sure. So it sounds like growing up, your father was an entrepreneur as well. He did have his highs and lows. And anybody you talk to that has any bit of success will tell you, don't become an entrepreneur unless you want to work really hard, go through a lot of pain, and tolerate highs and lows. So seeing that directly from your father, why did you still decide to pursue it? For me, inside, the concept of putting in effort as it relates to my work and not having proportionate results come back based on the amount of effort and success I was able to deliver doesn't work for me as a, as a person. I, I want to know that I have unlimited potential based on 
my ingenuity, you know, and the results that ultimately come from the work. So that's just a personality thing, sure. I think. Um, number two, I think that seeing the lows definitely shaped me because what I did see was that there were a lot, probably more lows than highs, if I'm if really? being honest. And I saw in my father constant optimism, regardless of the economic situation um, and the business results, which was inspiring to me and, 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 you know, made me, made me think that despite lows, things will be okay. So yes, it right. could get difficult, but there's always a way. And so he has a very good um, way about him as it relates to optimism. So that that was good. I knew that I had potential to do significant things, and I believe that, that I believed it then. And I be still believe it today. Obviously, I'm still going. So <laughs> you say believed in your potential. What what does that even look like? What did it feel like at a young age? It's interesting you ask that because I think I believed it maybe even more at a young age. Really? Because you have not been hit in the face yes. as many times. And so now I've been in, hit in the face quite a few times, um, certainly more than when I was 15 or right. 16 or, or 18. But I knew that I was blessed with, with certain gifts. And I don't think I ever shied away from that. I think I embraced that and I, I dove into it rather than even just teetered around it. I dove into it. Mm -hmm. And, and seeing the results that came from it more often than not, it emboldened me to continue, to continue on. And so as I did that through my teenage years, my formative years, and saw that I could achieve things that were seemingly, you know, outlier type results for somebody at my age at the time, that led me to a belief system that, okay, everything is possible. It's just about how you go about it. And so that's kind of the formative years in my teenage years. That's how my mind was shaped. And that's kind of what led to my path to say entrepreneurship is my way. Right. And do you think if you hadn't seen the success initially, say you were at it 10 years, would there be any point where you're like, you know what, as much as I hate to work for somebody else, this just isn't for me? Hard to say what if. There was a period we talked about before where I was making this decision around, is it going to be music or do I have to make a change? And in my mind, you know, I was doing these. I started my, my band at 12 years old, okay. ran that, you know, signed at 15 years old and, and was focused headstrong on that being my path till I was 20. So that's eight years. It ultimately didn't work out. So it's not that I just completely shifted my mindset about being responsible for my own destiny. Right. But I shifted the path in which I access it. And so I, I, when, when the music thing, when I made this decision to pursue business and entrepreneurship, I remember struggling with it because I remember thinking to myself, I've told myself for the last eight years that it was music or nothing. How am I okay with veering down a different path now? Right. And what I realized was it's not the music per se. What do you do when you start a band? You inspire a group of, of bandmates to get together, to create. You know, you create a brand. Your, your band is a brand. You create merchandise. You sell it. You book shows. 
that's what I enjoy, that creative process. It's not just the music. And that took me a while to, to understand. And so I just love that process of creating. And so if one thing doesn't work for 10 years, I'll look for another way to create a rear or I like to get out and do and figure it out. Right. Which is what you did with your hedge fund now turns, right? Real estate. I mean, it's, it's a conglomerate today, but it wasn't as pretty 10, 15 years ago when you first started off. So how do you identify where to pivot to? Because you said, okay, music wasn't working clearly. I still have this desire to do what I did with music. For many other 20 year olds, it might not be as clear. So is there, were there tools that you were given or that you were naturally gifted with that allowed you to clearly see, okay, I have this gift, I just need to apply it somewhere and it'll work. When you ask that question, I'm thinking back and I hear the words keep going in my mind. And I think that that's something that was instilled within me through my childhood. I think I heard those words through my father in the house a lot. Things may be bad, but keep going. Things may not have worked out, but we keep going. So that is a mantra right? that obviously lives somewhere in my subconscious because you're saying this. And, and that's what it goes back to. Out. Wow. I wasn't searching for it. Yeah. It just came. So that's there. Um. And as I said before, I'm my my strat there are people who sit there and ideate for two years on how to launch something and revenue targets and the logos, the t-shirts, the hats. I am the type of person which I encourage others to be typically to get out there and do. And you will learn so much more by just going, doing, and being open to pivoting and audibling as necessary. And so that's the path I've always taken. Um, and as market conditions or sentiment or even an opportunity set adjust externally, we take the information and adjust our strategy and, and focus to, to acclimate. And that has worked well. When you started off, did you have a supporting cast with you or were you solo on your mission to create something? When I started um, the business coming right out of college, it was just me in, in my bedroom, in my parents' house. But it wasn't just me in the sense that I had family friends that I leaned on for advice and support. I would spend, I remember, nights in my uh, family room in the house, sitting there with my parents and with a yellow legal pad and mm -hmm verbalizing my ideas and concept. They had no idea what I was talking about, but they listened and, and provided the right. support and the encouragement. Um, and then very quickly after I actually launched and had gotten a few things done, so I knew there was proof of concept, my brother, who was in college at the time, came home for summer break from Buffalo. And he ended up working with me that summer. Um, and so within six, seven months of launching, uh, he was together with me. He ended up going back to school for about five weeks and realized the opportunity was such that he was going to leave school and come join. Come join full time. So he did that. And when he went back to school, we hired another person. So we were then three people. Um, and a year or two later, a year and a half later, we were probably seven or eight. So we started to add. Ask when seeking a role is there ever a, a time where if you're not a creator yourself entirely 
that you can still reap many of the benefits from through working for somebody else? Or is majority of what you learned through your own solo entrepreneurship of building out your own company and creating what you did? The former. The former. Abs absolutely. I think that more of the creator vision type of person, which is where I would find myself. And then there's more of the operator, um, the person who is really driving day to day and can execute. Um, and that, while I can do some of that to an extent, it's not my strong suit. My strong suit is really on the vision, the creativity side. The artist. You're the artist. Correct. Right. So that's, that's, and there are some people that have really good blends of both. Um, but I'm definitely more on the creative vision sure. type side. So I think for, for an operator type personality, number one, absolutely. Right. They can align with the co-founder or somebody that's created something and they can come in and prove themselves as a tremendous operator who's able to get things done and execute. And that's a huge opportunity. And then for those who are more creative and vision oriented, there's no reason that you can't partner or tag onto somebody else's great idea and ultimately level that idea up. Right. See it once and then go and do it yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think the key is anybody that's stepping into a situation, whether you're starting a business or, you know, creating an idea or joining somebody else's journey where they've created something or you're creating, it's, you have to come in with the mindset and the intention of a creator. How am I taking this to a new place? Because that's human potential. Human potential is not limited to pushing buttons and clocking in and clocking out. And so that's the next level. It's how am I how am I adding enterprise value? How am I helping through my actions, through my presence even, to grow this organization? As somebody that's hired multiple individuals at different capacities, I think you're as you're very in tune spiritually, you look for certain character traits in employees and people that stick around you for a long period of time. So as somebody who's in their early twenties seeking a job opportunity, say it's working with you, for instance. What are some key things that you look at when evaluating them? Hunger and drive and legitimate hunger and drive because um, you can typically pretty quickly see through fabricated hunger and drive, which a lot of times for younger people who don't really have it, sure. they'll put it on. You can fake it for the first interview, right? Right. So, but, but if you have that, and it's genuine, that's the magic. And what does that look like? You can tell if somebody is a person who's going to go above and beyond a job description and add value from a very early stage of interaction with them. I mean, even so much as, as having a first conversation and having the interviewee, having them have, you know, have done work on the company and your background and you know, having done research prior to the call and coming with a knowledge base and thoughtful question. They didn't just stumble into the door and sit down as if the job is theirs. So you could see that and you could feel that and it plays out through an interview process. And again, you have to weed through whether it's genuine or whether it's put on. 
But if you have that and a true desire to go above and beyond a baseline description of the work, that's the magic because that's the value. Because oftentimes in, in our last interview, we were I asked our previous guest, I said, when you hire an individual who's in their you know millennial or Generation Z, there's a negative connotation with my generation that we're entitled, we're lazy, which I'm sure is true for uh, too much is bad, too much TikTok, too much Instagram. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's the perception. And it's definitely partially true. There's truth to everything. Do you feel that as a majority, I know you've had some encounters with, with younger adults, myself included, is that a fair assessment to make of this generation? I try to stay out of those generalities. Okay. Because, you know, when you paint things with a broad brush, you're coming in with the belief. And then you put the onus subconsciously on that individual to then change your mind. And so why? You were introduced to somebody or somebody applied to the, however they came to you. Sure. My, my view is to give them the benefit of the doubt and to say that a generation of, of, of kids or are all that, it's, <laughs> doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't help. Right. It doesn't help your, your process. doesn't help the outcome. And you'll see through it pretty quickly if it is the case, right? So you're trying to, you're trying to if you're hiring somebody, you need help at your business. Right. So it, it, it behooves you to, to give that person the benefit of the doubt if you're having an initial conversation. Right. So I, I, I don't, I try to stay, stay out of the labels and the generality. I don't find it helpful. So you had a successful career. Your life seem, seemingly was going great. And then you decided to still pursue a spiritual wisdom, which was Kabbalah for you a couple of years back. Why was there even an opening for you to welcome that into your life, given your clearly monetary success, but it seems like you're, you were a well-rounded person prior to that. So where did that desire or need come from? Well, my wife has been um, a disciple, a student of Kabbalah for almost 15 years in wow. New York. Yeah. So she was, she was at, at, at one point, very, very involved, um, attending Shabbat all the time, attending a variety of classes at the center in New York. And she had always said to me that you would enjoy this. It's, it seems like you follow a lot of the principles just naturally. And so I think you connecting to it would be even greater benefit to you. So, so she, that was, you know, five, six years ago that she was kind of planting this concept into sure. my mind. Um, and then COVID happened. And for the first several weeks uh, before the lockdown in New York City was lifted, I was at home. And during the night, uh, she said, well, we don't have much to do. And by the way, Kabbalah is now on Zoom online. And she studied with David Giam, who's out now in LA. He used to be in New York. And so she said, he's doing a Kabbalah One class. I think you would love this. Let's, let's, let's do it. You know, and, and it's once a week and, and whatever. So we started doing that. And I was immediately struck by the fact that it, it made sense to me. You were living a lot of those principles already. Yeah, it felt very natural. Um, but then there was sort of that next level of 
the why behind it all, which was transformationally inspiring to me, to be honest with you. Um, and, and led me down, as I mentioned before, when I get really into things, I become immersed in them, right. obsessed with them. So it led me down this rabbit hole of, I want to understand as much as I can, principally speaking about Kabbalah. And I also want to understand other aspects of spirituality. Um, and so I've spent the last four or five years, uh, really deeply immersed in sort of spiritual practices, a variety of them, and a variety of self-improvement methodologies. Um, and I'm tremendously fascinated by it. And, and I think that you ask, what was the opening? Um, I think that over time, yes, I did have a lot of early success uh, in the business. I also had some struggles uh, for sure. Um, so it, there was definitely, it's, it was not just a straight line. It's linear, right? Right. And so working to understand why and, and how that might have happened and working to get to my, myself to a place where I can give more and, and be of, of greater service to the world, I think it's a worthwhile exercise. Aside from the business challenges that you had prior to studying Kabbalah, were you happy and fulfilled as a person in general? And were there challenges in your personal life that also created that opening? There was something missing. And so if business was really good, then maybe the relationship was not so good. And if the relationship was in a good place, well, maybe business was suffering. Um, or maybe relationships with family was not. So it always felt like... A give and take. A give and take. And so what you learn through Kabbalah is that, no, you're meant to have it all. Right. It's just a matter of how do you approach having it all? I don't know if you want to get into specific principles or, or, or anything like that. Only if it's changed your life. I, 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 yeah, yeah I, I think that reflecting on why things maybe didn't just continue to go up forever is because I had and have more to give and more to share. And while I feel like I'm, I was generally a sharing person, I, I feel like I could have done a lot more and given a lot more. And so receiving for the sake of sharing has become a tremendous concept in my life. Um, and also understanding that sharing is not necessarily just writing a check all the time, but it can be more. It can be presence if executed in the, in the right way. It can right. be a vision. It can be words. And so approaching life from that lens has been a, a very fulfilling way to live. I was actually talking to my father the other day, and he told me he knew a very successful man. He was, you know, multiple companies, billionaire. Like he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he called my dad and he said, I'm not able to leave my bed. And for two months, he was so depressed because as a child, his perception was, if I can be the best, if I can make the most amount of money, I'll have everything. And he got there and the feeling was worse than the pursuit of it because now you have everything. And he, he was in bed for three months. And as soon as he said, I'm going to pursue fulfillment and not more money because it's an endless pursuit, right? There's never enough. There's always somebody richer. It's always somebody more successful. As soon as he changed his perception of it, he was actually able to derive satisfaction from the money and, of course, get out of bed. 
so in taking a lot of lofty but necessary ideas, there's a couple of questions from our audience and I'll ask you one of them as a, as a segue. As a 21-year-old, one of our guests, he's from, actually from Los Angeles, um, you might know him. He, he called me the other day and he asked me, he said, I'm so hungry. I have so much desire. I want to make all this money. I want to be successful. I want to influence the world, but I don't know what to do with it. Where do you start? If you have no resources, if you have no father figure to look up to, how do you just start? I wrote a blog about this and, and I, some, sometimes people ask about it and I think it, it relates to this question. People ask about, oh, you know, what's your five-year plan and your 10-year plan? And since day one of starting my entrepreneurial journey, I've always been against that concept because I feel that if you if you put forth a five-year plan, you're underselling your potential. Right. Chances are- You're going to shoot lower than that. Correct. And you can vastly outperform. So why limit yourself even with a plan that may mean nothing? I, I think about it in sort of its baby steps. And, and it's great to have this worldly expansive desire and to live with that and to feel that. I love that. I think that's great. But there's a time and a place when it comes to manifesting and moving the ball forward. It's about a step and then another step and then another step. And it's about having a vision understanding it, codifying it within your consciousness, within your mind, set the vision, set the intention, and then take everything into a very measured step-by-step approach. And you'll be so surprised that if you stay guided by the vision, but you stay focused on the here and now and the step-by-step, that you're going to blow past that vision. Our second question, we didn't get to spend too much time on this topic with relationships. Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode and We'll do it just focused on that. But this is from a 22-year-old entrepreneur. Uh, He's also from LA. He started his business at 16 years old. And he's been in a relationship for, I think, three years now. And his question was, and he was telling me first and then asked the question. When I was focused on my business, I had no time for my girlfriend. And my business was doing really well. And then when I started to spend more time with her, which I loved, I felt that I had to choose one or the other. So if you can play a little back in time here with us, when you were at that early seed age, would you speak against getting into a relationship at 18, 19, 20 years old and purely focusing on business? Or is there a path to balancing both? There's absolutely a path to balancing both. It has to do with your consciousness, but obviously it also has to do with your partner's consciousness. And in my experience on this subject directly, things aligned when they were supposed to align. And I had several relationships throughout my course Ultimately, my wife, uh, you know, obviously we're together now. It, it was so natural and easy that there's no, all of a sudden, you don't have to choose. The way that I look at, at, at my business, my business, my life, my family, it's one. I don't, I don't segment these things in my mind. I live my truth. I enjoy what I do. I share it with my family. I, I enjoy time with my family. I enjoy time with my business. I can do a little bit of both. I don't have to draw such a hard line. And so when the right relationship comes along, and, and, and again, meaning you're ready for the balance or, or the, the, the addition of the right relationship, sure. and that person is the right person, there's no thought about it. It just becomes seamless, in my experience. 
I'd like for you to leave us and our listeners with a closing thought. There is one thing that you could say. It can be spiritual. It can be something in your professional life, but that you think hearing will really make a difference in many people, especially in today's world. And specifically this time that we're in now, people are going through anxiety. People are going through depression. There's a lot of unclarity with the state of the world and clearly a lot of unfortunate death and conflict. What, what do you feel is important to leave our listeners with? Certainty beyond logic. Not easy to live as a, as a concept. And I think an extremely worthwhile concept to work tirelessly towards. Um, because when you can get there, and it's not that once you've gotten there, you stay there indefinitely. Sometimes you drift and then you do the work to kind of come back to it. The most critical piece of being able to weather a business journey and a life journey, knowing that you're meant for greatness, you're meant to have whatever you truly desire, whatever is your truth, it's meant for you. And knowing that despite the roadblocks, despite the challenges, they're, they're there for you to enable you to access that next level. Knowing that and living that is, I think, one of the only ways to make sense of chaos sometimes. So that that is, that's the key tenet for me. Beautiful. Josh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. We hope to have you on again very soon. And again, relationships will be the focus, but we'll, we'll always pivot back to business. Um, great having you on. Always good chatting. Thanks, Josh.